Is it possible, in the midst of a crisis, for an image of that event to be psychically transmitted through time and space to a loved one? This is Mark Lyon. Welcome to The Other Realm. Throughout my life, I have collected true accounts left to us by those who have inadvertently crossed the invisible threshold from our world into the realm of the supernatural and return to tell the tale. These are their stories. On October 24, 1889, Edmund Dunn was working as a fireman on the Wolf, a steam-powered tugboat serving ships in the harbor of Chicago, when around three o'clock in the morning, while adjusting a towline, he either fell or was caught by the towline and hurled overboard and drowned. About three weeks later, his body, having floated to the surface, was discovered near the place where the accident had occurred. In a statement sent to the Society for Psychical Research in London, his sister, Mrs. Agnes Packett, wrote the following. I arose about the usual hour on the morning of the accident, probably about six o'clock. I had slept well through the night, had no dreams or sudden awakening. I awoke feeling gloomy and depressed, which feeling I could not shake off. After breakfast, my husband went to his work, and at the proper time, the children were gotten ready and sent to school, leaving me alone in the house. Soon after this, I decided to steep and drink some tea hoping it would relieve me of the gloomy feelings aforementioned. I went into the pantry, took down the tea canister, and as I turned around, my brother Edmund, or his exact image, stood before me and only a few feet away. The apparition stood with back toward me, or rather partially so, and was in the act of falling forward, away from me, seemingly impelled by two ropes or a loop of rope drawing against his legs. The vision lasted but a moment, disappearing over a low railing or bulwark, but was very distinct. I dropped the tea, clasped my hands to my face, and exclaimed, My God, Ed is drowned. At about half-past ten a.m., my husband received a telegram from Chicago announcing the drowning of my brother. When he arrived home, he said to me, Ed is sick in hospital at Chicago. I have just received a telegram. To which I replied, Ed is drowned. I saw him go overboard. I then gave him a minute description of what I had seen. I stated that my brother, as I saw him, was bareheaded, had on a heavy blue sailor shirt, no coat, and that he went over the rail or bulwark. I noticed that his pants legs were rolled up enough to show the white lining inside. I also described the appearance of the boat at the point where my brother went overboard. I am not nervous, and neither before nor since 
have I had any experience in the least degree similar to that above related. My brother was not subject to fainting or vertigo. Signed, Agnes Packett. Mrs. Packett's statement was verified by one from her husband, which read, At about 10.30 o'clock a.m., October 24, 1889, I received a telegram from Chicago announcing the drowning of my brother-in-law, Edmund Dunn, at three o'clock that morning. I went directly home, and wishing to break the force of the sad news I had to convey to my wife, I said to her, Ed is sick in hospital at Chicago. I have just received a telegram, to which she replied, Ed is drowned. I saw him go overboard. She then described to me the appearance and dress of her brother as described in her statement, also the appearance of the boat. I started at once for Chicago, and when I arrived there, I found the appearance of that part of the vessel described by my wife to be exactly as she had described it, though she had never seen the vessel and the crew verified my wife's description of her brother's dress, except that they thought that he had his hat on at the time of the accident. They said that Mr. Dunn had purchased a pair of pants a few days before the accident occurred, and as they were a trifle long before wrinkling at the knees, he had worn them rolled up, showing the white lining as seen by my wife. The captain of the tug, who was at the wheel at the time of the accident, seemed reticent. He thought my brother-in-law was taken with a fainting fit, or vertigo, and fell over backward. But a sailor, Frank Yemont, told a friend of mine that he, Yemont, stood on the bow of the vessel that was being towed and saw the accident. He stated that my brother-in-law was caught by the tow-line and was thrown overboard, as described by my wife. I think that the captain, in his statement, wished to avoid responsibility, as he had no right to order a fireman, my brother-in-law's occupation, to handle the tow line. My brother-in-law was never, to my knowledge, subject to fainting or vertigo. Signed, Peter Packett. far less traumatic but equally intriguing case was sent to the Society for Psychical Research involving a lady who wished to be referred to only as Mrs. B and her friend Mrs. E. A. Connor, a lady well known at the time as a writer and speaker. On January 15, 1889, Mrs. Connor received the following letter which had been sent on the previous day. My dear friend, I know you will be surprised to receive a note from me so soon, but no more than I was today, when you were shown to me clairvoyantly in a somewhat embarrassed position. I doubt very much if there was any truth in it. Nevertheless, we'll relate it and leave you to laugh at the idea of it. I was sitting in my room sewing this afternoon about two o'clock, when what should I see but your own dear self? But heavens, in what a position! 
Now, I don't want to excite your curiosity too much or try your patience too long, so we'll come to the point at once. You were falling up on the front steps in the yard. You had on your black skirt and velvet waist, your little straw bonnet, and in your hand were some papers. When you fell, your hat went in one direction and the papers in another. You got up very quickly, put on your bonnet, picked up the papers, and lost no time getting into the house. You did not appear to be hurt, but looked somewhat mortified. It was all so plain to me that I had ten notions to one to dress myself and come over and see if it were true, but finally concluded that a sober, industrious woman like you would not be stumbling around at that rate and thought I'd best not go on a wild goose chase. Now what do you think of such a vision as that? Is there any possible truth in it? I feel almost ready to scream with laughter whenever I think of it. You did look so funny spreading yourself out in the front yard. Great was the fall thereof. But for the life of me, I cannot tell whether there are any steps from the sidewalk into the yard as I saw them or not. Now do tell me, dear, if I saw correctly or not, or if the thing was shown to me simply to give me something to laugh about. Hope you got home last night without any adventures. And now good night. Sincerely, your friend. Upon receiving the letter, Mrs. Connor revealed to a friend who happened to call on her that day that the accident had indeed occurred exactly in every essential particular as had been related in the letter. Mrs. Connor wrote in response to questions put to her by Frederick W. H. Myers of the Society for Psychical Research. I was writing that day in the Congressional Library. I finished my work and passed out through the Capitol building. As I did so, I glanced at the large clock in the hall, and it lacked twenty minutes to three. It was not more than a minute till I reached the steps where I fell, so that must have been within a few seconds of nineteen minutes to three. I have no means of ascertaining whether the vision preceded the accident. To me, the most convincing proof of the correctness of the vision is a sentence which you will find like this. If I remember right in the letter, I do not know if there are steps from the sidewalk to the yard. The queer fact is that there were two steps from the sidewalk to the yard, the street having been cut down. On the top of these two steps in the yard, I stumbled. Mrs. B. has never seen this house. I have only removed thither a few days before. While the foregoing cases occurred to women who were wide awake at the time of their visions, crisis visions often come in the form of dreams. 
Such is the case from the proceedings of the Society for Psychical Research involving a Dr. Golinsky, who at the time of the incident was practicing medicine in Russia. Written in French and translated into English, his account read as follows. I am in the habit of dining about three o'clock in the afternoon and of sleeping for an hour or an hour and a half after a meal. In July 1888, I lay down on a sofa as usual and went to sleep about 3.30. I dreamt that the doorbell rang and that I had the usual rather disagreeable sensation that I must get up and go to some sick person. Then I found myself transported into a little room with dark hangings. To the right of the door leading into the room is a chest of drawers, and on this I see a little paraffin lamp of a special pattern. I am keenly interested in the shape of this little lamp, different from any it has previously happened to me to see. To the left of the door I see a bed, on which lies a woman suffering from severe hemorrhage. I do not know how I come to know that she has a hemorrhage, but I know it. I examine her, but rather to satisfy my conscience than for any other reason, as I know beforehand how things are, although no one speaks to me. Afterwards, I dream vaguely of medical assistance which I give, and then I awake in an unaccustomed manner. Generally, I awake slowly and remain for some time in a drowsy state, but this time I woke almost with a start, as if someone had awakened me. As I awoke, I heard a clock strike the half hour. I asked myself, what half hour is it then, and looked at my watch, and I saw that it was half past four. I got up, smoked a cigarette, and walked up and down my room in a state of unusual excitement, thinking over the dream I had just had. It was rather a long time since I had had a case of hemorrhage of any sort among my clients, and I wondered what could have suggested this dream. About ten minutes after I awoke, the doorbell rang, and I was summoned to a patient. Entering the bedroom, I was astonished, for I recognized the room of which I had just dreamt. The patient was a sick woman, and what struck me especially was the paraffin lamp placed on the chest of drawers exactly in the same place as in my dream, and of the same pattern which I had never seen before. My astonishment was so great that I, so to speak, lost the clear distinction between my past dream and the present reality, and approaching the sick woman's bed, I said affirmatively, You have a hemorrhage, only recovering myself when the patient replied, Yes, but how do you know of it? Struck by the strange coincidence between my dream and what I saw, I asked the patient when she had decided to send for me. She told me that she had been unwell since the morning, but about 1 p.m. a slight hemorrhage commenced and some pain, but she paid no attention to it. 
The hemorrhage became severe after two o'clock, and the patient began to grow anxious. Her husband, not being at home, she did not know what to do, and lay down thinking it would pass. Between three and four o'clock, she was still undecided and in great anxiety. About 4.30, she decided to send for me. The distance between my house and that of the patient is 20 minutes' walk. I only knew her from having attended her in illness for some time before, and knew nothing of her present state of health. In a general way, I seldom dream, and this is the only dream I've ever had which I've always remembered on account of its veridical character. Our final case also involves both a dream and a doctor. Dr. A.K. Young of the Terrace, County Monaghan, Ireland. On a Monday night in December 1836, Dr. Young dreamed that he was standing at the gate of an estate many miles from his home. With him were a woman with a basket hanging from her arm, four men whom he recognized as his tenants, and other men who were strangers, some of whom were brutally attacking one of his tenants, a man identified in his account only as H.W. In the dream, Dr. Young sprang to his tenant's defense. I violently struck at the man on my left. Dr. Young was to later write. Finding to my surprise that I did not knock him down, I struck again and again with all the violence of a man frenzied at the sight of my poor friend's murder. To my great amazement, I saw that my arms, although visible to my eye, were without substance, and the bodies of the men I struck at and my own came close together after each blow through the shadowy arms I struck with. My blows were delivered with more extreme violence than I think I ever exerted, but I became painfully convinced of my incompetency. I have no consciousness of what happened after this feeling of insubstantiality came upon me. The following morning, Dr. Young awoke to muscles which were stiff and sore and his wife told him that she had been frightened by his thrashing about during the night, lunging about with his arms as if fighting for his life. He told her the details of his dream, and Wednesday morning received a letter from his estate agent informing him that his tenant, H.W., had been found at the location Dr. Young had seen in his dream, unable to speak, and suffering from a fractured skull. Dr. Young set out for town and requested the senior magistrate to order the questioning of the three men he had recognized in his dream. All three men gave accounts identical to each other's testimony, which also matched the events in Dr. Young's dream. All three men also identified the woman with the basket, who, upon questioning, offered a similar account. 
The four witnesses all agreed that between eleven o'clock and midnight they had been walking together to their homes when they were overtaken by three strangers, two of whom savagely assaulted H.W., while the others prevented his friends from interfering. While H.W. recovered from his injuries, it was said that he was never the same afterwards, and eventually he left Ireland. Dr. Young would later write, We had not at the time any local newspaper to record such an event, and as there was not any clue as to the intended assassins, the occurrence passed into oblivion. I passed the spot where I was conscious of the attack very frequently, and I can point with my finger to within a foot or two of where I fought, shadowy, and the positions of all the parties present. Had not my wife been present and awake when I was so profoundly asleep and witnessed the amazing and alarming violence of the blows I made, a matter she spoke of afterwards to me more than once with terror, I never could have accounted for the very wretched feeling of weariness, prostration, and pain with which I got from my bed on the next morning. This is Mark Lyon, inviting you to join me on the first day of every month as we explore more true tales from the Other Realm. The Other Realm is a production of Wind Whistle Theatre. Our music was composed by Dan Heflin. Support for The Other Realm has been provided by HauntedIsles.com, offering private and small group tours of haunted Britain and Ireland, and by Heftone Studios, producers of Phantoms of the Holbrook, a docudrama relating true events occurring at what well may be the most haunted hotel in the entire world, and Natalie a modern retelling of the German legend of the Lorelei, and by Wind Whistle Press, publishers of Jesse Adelaide Middleton's classic trilogy of true tales of the supernatural, The White Ghost Book, The Grey Ghost Book, and its sequel, Another Grey Ghost Book, and Lep Castle, The House of Horrors, by Mildred Darby, and San Francisco Ghosts by Mark Lyon.